it's good to have at least two superpowers in the world that kind of counterweigh each yes. other. It is actually a good thing just because each of these countries needs to be careful about what they are doing, right? And then when the Soviet Union disbanded, the U.S. became kind of this wild West uh, cowboy that is just shooting everywhere, right? So, uh, and uh, of course, it culminated in the in the war in Iraq, for example. I mean, many many would argue about this, but this is my opinion. So, it's not great to have one superpower. Yeah. And and for example, uh, Donald Trump is the. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.com firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free all right guys welcome back to the podcast and uh, we have a returning guest today mr niago how has it been hi hi mj thanks for having me how how has uh i think you i think you were on almost two years already yeah around almost two, two years, years ago. ago yeah um, how has it been since? Uh, everything's fine with me. Yeah. So I started doing a PhD. And Congratulations. <laughs> this is a side project. Um, uh, and it was, a, it was a challenge, like right. uh, even starting it. But uh, yeah, uh, hopefully it will progress. Well, what, what are you working on? Uh, it's related to human capital. Mm. Uh, so it's connected to education, um, partly touches on healthcare. Um, it's related to the situation in a number of different countries. Right. So, uh, yeah, my interest is, uh, is related to international relations and so on in connection to that. That's very interesting. Um, I thought we would jump straight into global politics, but I guess uh, you picked my interest on your PhD project. And uh, I just want to ask about, is it, is Malaysia one of those countries? Uh, yeah, so uh, the main focus would be to figure out uh, a kind of a framework for Malaysia in right. particular, uh, taking best practices from other countries. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, not much of um, research has been done in, uh, on this topic, especially in, uh, in Malaysia and in ASEAN as a whole. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to fill that gap somehow. So uh, the angle is like essentially getting perhaps developing countries like ours where the human capital is not quite at where we can be and what are the steps required to achieve that? Am I, am I right to say that? Yeah. In, in, in broad terms, yes, you right. can, you can uh, put it that way. Uh, it's just that, you know, different developing countries have different problems, right? Some right. countries are, um, you know, pretty advanced in terms of, uh, so there are two main components of, of human capital. Yeah. That's, you know, the traditional theory one is education, one is healthcare. And uh, many of the developing countries nowadays, including Malaysia, they don't really have pro you know, any serious problems with, uh, with healthcare. 
even though if you read some reports from the World Bank, for example, they'll tell you that a lot of Asian kids have problems with stunting. Which, Growth stunts, uh, right. Uh, Interesting. You know, I mean, I, I think this is more related to diet and, and right. genetics rather yes. than, uh, you know, any uh, any problems with malnutrition as, as, as it's usually put in reports. But, you know, they, they are, uh, you know, bigger specialists than, than me in the area. It's just my, you know, general observation. Right, opinion, right. right. So, for example, when we're talking about Malaysia, the problems are mostly related to, to education. Mm-hmm. Um, so Malaysia is quite unique because there are, uh, you know, with most of the other developing countries, the problem is usually that there is a pretty uh, significant divergence between um, relatively well-off households and um, and the poorer households, for example. So the, the kids of poor households underperform significantly. You know, they go to uh, lower quality schools, for example, they don't have access to materials and to properly trained educators and so on in malaysia that's not a problem right so uh in malaysia there is underperformance across the board right (laughs) so this is pretty unique like uh you know there there aren't many other countries that uh, have this uh, type of profile usually countries where there is um, relatively um, flat performance across the board they are developed countries and, and and kids perform um, relatively well, right? In Malaysia, it's underperformance across the board. So, um, you know, this is an interesting feature that right. has when you say explored. across the board, you mean? Uh, it means that there isn't, so the difference in performance in uh, standardized international tests, for example, uh, for pupils right, right. is not that uh, significant. It's not even statistically significant between uh, kids, for example, that come from the cities as compared to kids that come from the rural areas or kids that come from oh. uh, richer households and so on, right? Which, uh, like, for example, if you if you look at Singapore, that is the top performer in, in the yeah. world in most uh, standardized tests. Uh, so there is a pretty significant divergence between uh, kids that, um, that come from richer households, right? So, right. Um, you know, these kids go to uh, extra tuition classes and, um, you know, do a lot of extracurricular activities, probably they have access to better schools and so on. Yeah, this is, this is not what is happening in Malaysia in general. So what explains that underperformance? I mean, I guess <laughs> like for the, for the poor, it's, it's easy to understand, right? Like intuitively, you know, they do have the time, investments, maybe they have to finish school early to work or whatever. But what explains the, I guess, uh, higher income folks in Malaysia's underperformance academically? Uh, well, this is one of the open questions, right? So, right. so this is one of the things that I will probably try to uh, to figure out. But uh, there are you know, a number mm-hmm. of suggested reasons. So one of them is, uh, for example, the unwillingness of parents to uh, participate in the uh, homework preparation for for children oh, for example okay. this has been suggested as as one explanation right so uh, in countries like singapore uh, what is observed is by the way you have to you have to keep in mind that when we're talking about malaysia uh, statistical data is not easy to come by. That's true. Right? Yeah. So uh, this is a problem that a lot of researchers are facing with malaysia and uh, the department of statistics, they have been doing some improvements, especially in the last few days, yes, they, right. uh, they launched a new, a yes. new open source site. Uh, but uh, so, for example, 
it's it's difficult to explain, but this is just based on my general observation so far. And like, for example, when we compare it to Singapore, in Singapore, it's not just in terms of absolute um, amount of money that uh, richer households uh, spend on education for their children. It's also as um, a percentage of their household income ah, that they spend, right? So for example, this, this is interesting because uh, you would you would expect that poorer households would be putting up more uh, higher percentage of their household income for education, right? But uh, this is not what's happening. For example, in Singapore, uh, this might be something that uh, is happening in Malaysia, right? So it is possible right. that uh, poorer households or rural households need to spend more money as percentage of their household income than than richer households, and richer households are not willing to you know do um, know go this extra mile to spend more so you know i mean these are just my uh, right some suggestions it's not something that's proven yet i see okay look <laughs> uh, obviously it's a work in progress yeah. so perhaps in a couple of years time when you're back here for round three we can uh, <laughs> talk more about your project but we want to get into the investing stuff right and the last time you we here we talked about gloves uh, we talked about a lot of things, but at that point in time, the Ukraine war had not happened yet. We are, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, the one year anniversary of this war. Uh, <clears throat> at this point of recording, which is early February. <clears throat> what do you think? Okay, so here's my perspective as not a keen observer, but a really a, a bystander, <clears throat> a casual onlooker. And what I see is Russia enters the fray, the, the storyline, Russia enters the fray. Um, they made inroads. Ukraine uh, essentially defended themselves well, pushing back Russia. And we heard stories of failures in the Russian army and they're pushed back, but they're kind of not out of the situation yet. Germany is supplying tanks. Ukraine is running out of money. That's my understanding right now. Okay. So perhaps give us a clear view on what exactly is happening and what are your general thoughts on what's happening? Okay, okay, sure. So uh, let's start a little bit um, earlier than that, right? Okay. So um, because uh, at, at a later point in our conversation, we'll I'm sure we'll talk about China and and Taiwan, yep, for example, yep. right? So this is this has more relation to the situation in Malaysia potentially, and so yeah, on. So, that's right. um, but the thing is that um, the situation in uh, in in Ukraine has um, has a lot of similarities to the situation with China and Taiwan in terms of how um, authoritarian regimes act in general, right? So um, one of the one so just. Uh, uh, you know, a disclaimer here, I, uh, my best, uh, okay, not, not in absolute terms, but in relative terms, the highest return percentage wise that I had last year was an investment I did in wheat. I think we have uh, yes. discussed this privately, right? So um, the problem there was that too few people had hedged against the risk that uh, Russia actually invades Ukraine. 
Right. So uh, if you read some reports from before the 24th of February 2022 uh, from analysts and, um, you know, geopoliticians, geostrategists and so on, um, you would notice that uh, I, I won't say at least 80 percent of them were saying that it's unlikely that uh, an invasion will a, a full scale invasion would take place. Right. So uh, why I say full scale invasion here is because this war technically started in 2014, right? So that was the first time when uh, Russia, it was during the uh, Winter Olympic Games in, in Sochi at that time. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, that was the first time when uh, Russia an annexed Crimea and then uh, the conflict in the Donbass, the eastern part of Ukraine started where there were so-called separatists that, uh, you know, somehow had uh more modern weapons than most armies in in europe but you know that's <laughs> that's that's another topic so um many strategists thought that a full-scale invasion didn't make sense okay so uh at a surface level it didn't and, and you know from today's point of view indeed it did not make a lot of sense uh seeing as how um russia is currently bogged down and it's uh, losing an enormous amount of uh, military equipment even though they have huge stockpiles but still the the numbers are staggering and, and we're talking about confirmed numbers right we're not talking about uh, you know the numbers that are being reported by ukraine for example so um looking at things from the many of the analysts were looking at things from the viewpoint of uh, how uh, rational um you know logical uh you can say a democratically elected leader mm -hmm. or, or in general a democratic society would think about such an invasion and and this is one um, very significant mistake that, that these strategies very frequently make um i have my suspicions that some of these strategies and, and analysts they have uh, ulterior motives on uh, why they were making wrong predictions there are some of them that uh, were you know bad actors in all of this um, but, uh, in most cases, they just, uh, came from a completely wrong, uh, uh, perspective of, of, of how things were happening. Uh, one of the main misconceptions that is actually even, uh, it was quite popular, at least in the early days of the invasion in Malaysia was related to, first of all, the reasons why this happened, right? So the, the most popular narrative, for example, here was that it's because of the expansion of NATO eastward. Yes. Right. So, um, so. Uh, and and there was this um, guy Mearsheimer that his uh, yep, you know John papers Mearsheim, yep. be became very popular and and so on. Uh, first of all, the guy has uh, you know at best a cursory idea. I mean, I'm not a specialist, right? Uh, straight away, I'm saying right. uh, this clear for disclaimer here. I'm not a um, you know a geopolitician or anything like this. But uh, even reading through the the basic tenets of of the thesis of Mearsheimer is just um, you know there's a lot of things that he uh, just doesn't he's he, he the information that he bases his thesis on is just wrong right okay so uh the the first thing about the expansion of nato is that uh even though countries voluntarily so there's nobody that is pressurizing countries to join nato they, they you know there are some countries that <clears> even go to yeah. a referendum and so on to to join it um, so they're doing it uh, on their own volition. So first of all, many people have to ask themselves why the countries would want to do that, right? Uh, the second thing is that, um, and which which completely shattered this uh, thesis of the NATO expansion is um, 
So the country that has the second longest border with Russia in Europe, Finland, uh, is joining NATO, right? So, so yeah. um, which is which is a change in policy because they previously they they had always acted as a buffer between exactly the, exactly. Right. So they were they were uh, supposed to be a neutral country, right? So they are a part. They are uh, they are uh, in the EU, but uh, they are not uh, in NATO. And they, you know, even Putin was talking about the Finlandization of uh, Ukraine. So the, the the Finland scenario, right? So where they stay neutral and they stay as a buffer yeah. and so on. Um, so having, you know, we, we can compare Ukraine to Finland in this particular case, just because the borders are also long with Russia and it, uh, you know, they are largely plain lands. So it makes sense that, you know, Russia can be somehow worried of, uh, of some invasion and, and, and so on, you know, from, from NATO, though, I don't know who in their right mind would invade a country with, um, the biggest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world, but let's say that. You know, this might be some consideration. So the fact right now is that uh, all the military bases of Russia that are near to the border with Finland, they have been emptied out. So all the soldiers are uh, in Ukraine or near to Ukraine nowadays, right? So if Russia was so worried about, uh, you know, NATO approaching their borders, then why are they not right now, uh, you know, invading Finland or at the very least building up army along the border with Finland, right? So... You know, this is one of the one of the things that is not being yeah. explained by by this theory. Uh, so another thing is that even though countries in Eastern Europe they have been joining NATO, uh, there have been no bases NATO bases in in Eastern Europe, or at least permanent bases, right? So they have um, NATO has been um, going with this so-called tripwire strategy, where they have some small units that are dislocated, for example, in the Baltics or in the Balkans. And um, like if, a, if an invasion of Russia takes place, supposedly these units are just uh, supposed to recon and, and alert in advance so that uh, bigger military units join them right over time. So uh, this is this changing now. So this uh, calculation is changing with the invasion of Ukraine and then there'll be permanent bases of NATO in Eastern Europe as a result of the invasion, yeah. not before that, right? So if again, if the reason was the expansion of NATO, then it means it's a total blunder, this this invasion of Ukraine. So um, I, I guess uh, one question I have is, um, should, given the issues that they have, right, and given, I think I would say the paranoia of Russia, right, would it be wise to, I guess, reject the membership of all these so-called buffer states, do you think that that is the solution? Because for us, I, I guess for the NATO side to expect Russia to back down, I think that's going to be hard. So, uh, if it, so, what you're talking about is, let's say, NATO never uh, admitted these countries to. Yeah, so they 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 understand that okay, it's attractive for countries to be part of NATO for all sorts of reasons. But given the situation, yeah, we can't, we, we, we can, we can, we can help you uh, as a non-NATO nation, let's call it. But uh, because of the paranoia, and because I think when I look at the Russian side, I see a lot of paranoia and um, they've always had this fear of 
some central European or Western European power, you know, at their doorsteps. I think that has been the, their history the, over the past 200 years, uh, causing a lot of havoc and suffering. And it, from what I see, it may make sense that, you know, NATO, especially America, says, yeah, we'll leave them uh, neutral. But Russia, you don't get to bully these countries, but we are not going to be, you know. Okay. Okay. So, uh, first of all, um, you know, the tenet that Russia has always been worried that is right. being propagated in, you know, the last few years, you can say, is not true. So, uh, there was a speech of, uh, of Putin uh, from, if I'm not mistaken, 2002, maybe. Right. Uh, that was a little bit before the Baltic states joined NATO. Right. Right. So, and uh, it, it, the question was about how Russia feels about the ball. And, and then, uh, so why the Baltic states are so important is, uh, you first of all, you have to understand where the core lands of Russia are. This is the area between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Yeah, right? Right, so, right. so actually a country like Estonia, for example, is nearer to St. Petersburg, much nearer than uh, any point of Ukraine is to Moscow. Right. Right. So at that time, the question was put in such a way that, uh, you know, how Russia feels about that. And, you know, all of these countries are so near and there are significant um, um, Russian minorities in these countries. Like, for example, the situation in Latvia is very special. Um, I'll tell you in a a couple of sentences in a while. But anyway, so that was the question. And Putin said that, and and I'm paraphrasing here, that uh, every country has the right to choose their uh, you know, path. So Russia is not there to stop them, for example. Right. So, uh, again, you know, this, this, um, uh, you know, idea that Russia is somehow scared and has always been scared is just, is just not the case. Right. And, and this was not the position of Russia all the time. So, uh, this, again, this relates to what we were talking a while about China and Taiwan in that right. uh, dictatorial totalitarian regimes, they tend to uh, change their mind abruptly based yes. on uh, calculations that are very different from the calculations of, uh, uh, you know, what, what you want to call uh, just purely rational uh, countries dictated by uh at least to a certain extent, the the general population or at least the larger group of the population um, in terms of the decisions that these countries So what has changed then in your view from for for Putin? Well, so one of the things is uh, that you have to understand is the Crimean annexation was hugely popular in Russia. Right. Right. So um, this is this is a problem that I see with um, another part of uh, the analysis area where uh, people say, okay, this is Putin's war, and uh, you know they see um, they see him as the sole person that takes all decisions, and which is not far from the truth, right? So uh, in the especially in the last years, he has become um, he has concentrated an enormous amount of power in his own hands as compared to uh, you know spreading it through the oligarchs or the so-called Siloviki, the people that are around him. Um, but the the thing is that uh, even the most um authoritarian dictator has to appeal to the masses right to a certain extent so um the power uh, that 
Russia projects in the world is, for example, something that appeals very much to the Russian people in general. And uh, this is something that, for example, even uh, one of the most popular nowadays uh, opponents of Putin, Alexei Navalny, is also talking about. So he's... um, you know, he's not talk- he's not even talking about, for example, Crimea returning to Ukraine or something like this. He's he's still saying that uh, you know, a Crimean accession has been so popular that there's no way that it can be returned to to Ukraine, at least not through a through peaceful means. It's just that the people are very much in support of that, right? So uh, the problem is that over time, um, the the equation changes for that could be for many different reasons in a way in which the uh, authoritarian's position is not stable enough. So uh, they need to do something that is popular with the people. You can can call it a populist policy, right? So let's say that in Russia, um, there has, so unlike, okay, I'm not going to go into detail on this, but after the Soviet Union disbanded, uh, the countries that were a part of the Soviet Union, they uh, they completely crashed their economies, right? They, some right. of the economies crashed to levels that were worse than uh, the levels of the Great Depression. And uh, Russia was not one of these countries, even though there was turmoil in Russia. And of course, uh, they had problems. And then in 1997, they technically uh, defaulted on their, uh, on their foreign debt and so on. So... Um, Fortunately, Russia has uh, oil and gas, which kind of cushioned the the, the blow from uh, from this disbandment. But of course, uh, over time, Russians can see that the rest of the world is um, is you know evolving, and yeah. it's not just about uh, purely exporting resources and and reaching a certain circle. Of people, uh, you know, people, you know, Russians uh, travel a lot to Europe. For example, they can see how things are developing in Europe, what is happening in Russia, and if things stagnate from their point of view. Um, then, you know, people might want a change, right? A change of leadership. Maybe they think that somebody else is um, is more worthy to be the leader, for example. Like um, uh, there were a number of uh, potential opponents of Putin that uh, that died in different circumstances. Um, so when this happens, unfortunately, in many cases in um, authoritarian regimes, the change to a potential new leader is not smooth and and easy and uh you know without any bloodshed and so yeah for sure so uh you know this this might have been what has changed in the equation but uh, you know we we can <coughs> we can mostly guess about the the exact reasons just because data is uh so difficult to come by yeah. at least reliable data right so i guess how does all this play out uh-huh. um what's gonna happen in your view you mean from, in regards from, to the war? Yeah, right. So, okay. The uh, first, you have to understand what the plan for the war was. Uh, it was not supposed to be a you know now it's one year. It might be two years, three years, and so on. It was not supposed to be uh, this way. It was supposed to be a blitzkrieg where yep. uh, Russia just enters, potentially um, um, you know occupy some huge territory to the to the north of Ukraine, all the way to Kiev, and then they uh, potentially assassinate. Zelensky or uh, drive the whole government of Ukraine away from Kiev. So uh, maybe drive them to uh, Oviv that is in the western part of Ukraine is near to Poland. Or, you know, the, the idea was something like this. Right. Right. So it was not it was not about uh, long term occupation with uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers lost and, and so on. So um, basically, I mean, <clears throat> not to use that extreme example, but basically 
Nazi Germany and France. They wanted to do something. Uh, yeah, you can, yeah. You, can uh, yeah. you can say, yeah, not Germany and France is a, right, is a, right. is a good example, probably uh, much less so about uh, Germany and, and Poland. Let's yes, say. yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, so, but yeah, the, the whole the whole assessment of the situation on the Russian part was wrong. And this is one problem, again, with, uh, with dictatorial regimes that um, over time, uh, when you kill the messenger too many times, you, you lack a messenger, right? So if you, uh, if in, in, in such authoritarian societies, the problem is that information, uh, accurate information doesn't make its way up the chain that's right. when, when it's negative, right? So in, uh, in general, dictatorial regimes work fine and, and there are rarely any hiccups in good times, right? Because when everything is good, you don't need to really worry so much about stuff. But when uh, there, there is some uh, turmoil or some um, uh, variability in, in, what's, in what's about to happen, they are not good at reacting to, to such situations. And this is one of the reasons. So, uh, for example, when you know that your promotion depends on bringing good news to, yeah, to your... You only give good news. Though. Exactly. So, so the bad news are really being shared. And one of the things that was miscalculated, most likely because of um, poor uh, intel information that was supplied to, to Putin, uh, was that the Russians were expecting that the Ukrainians were not going to resist. Uh, and resist, I'm not talking about, like, for example, the army having sufficient amount of uh, weaponry and so the on. The citizenry. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the citizens, right? So all of these videos that came out of people, like, trying to stop tanks with their hands and, uh, and you know, just parking their cars yeah. in front of the tanks and so on. So uh, this is not something that the Russians expected. So they... Um, uh, traditionally, they see Ukrainians as... Uh, fraternal kind of people that Cousins, are very yeah. close to them yep. uh, you know culturally and uh, and li Language, linguistically yeah. and yeah. so on uh, and and this was a major miscalculation because if they had the support of uh, the wider population in the country most likely uh, it was much more likely that, that they were going to succeed in in this blitzkrieg so you know you made the wheat trade last year what would you say are some of the other ways i know you're not a big fan of you know taking advantage i remember you know on stormbeat you were unhappy about people saying like oh you know like creating webinars all right take advantage of the ukrainian crisis and all that but certainly there are aspects or there are elements of um perhaps arbitrage in the markets or potential to um, make money in the markets. Wheat was one of them. Uh, the war has been around for a year. Do you see other wheat-like opportunities? Okay. So um, there are a few areas. Uh, and by the way, just a disclaimer on what I mentioned about wheat. So the the, the earnings from that trade, I, I just donated. Right, them, you screw, right. right oh, you donated so back. I, 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 I didn't keep them, right? right? right so right. I, I was just talking, I, I was just giving that example in terms of uh, yeah. returns and, and where there was miscalculation in terms of analysis yeah. of the situation, right? So um, uh, one of the one of the problems is that that was a knee-jerk reaction after the, the war started in terms of the wheat trade and, and, and corn, although corn was to a, to a lesser extent. Um, the situation will likely only get worse this year. So uh, last year, okay, the, the, after the knee-jerk situation, the, the wheat 
price actually dropped quite substantially. And right now, if I'm not mistaken, it's even below the level from before the invasion started. Okay. So uh, there is still an opportunity there because there's still a miscalculation in this trade. And uh, just to give you an example, the, the other day, the Ukrainian Ministry of Agriculture uh, released a report where it was saying that the wheat uh, production for 2023 is expected to be 50% lower than the production in 2021. Right. So uh, just to give an idea to the, to the audience, Ukraine is fourth largest exporter of wheat in the world, uh, running for, it, it was running for- What's, what's the claim? They're the bread basket of Europe. Ah, yes, like you, you, can, right. you can say so. You can say so, but although you can, um, you know, you can make the case that Russia is even a bigger exporter yes, than yes. that. Uh, so there are two problems here. One is with uh, the actual capability of Ukrainian farmers to even produce anything, let alone export. So, right. So when you, when you think about it, uh, the production in 2021 was 106 million ton or something like this, and it's going to drop to 53 million tons. Whoa, that's a halving. Yeah, it's it's 50 percent lower. So um, you you can you can think of it in uh, in absolute terms, but if you think about the amount of wheat that Ukraine needs to feed them, you know, their own population. So it means that the actual drop in, in exportable amount of wheat is probably more like 75% or something like this, right? Yeah. This for the yeah, third or right. fourth biggest right. exporter in the world. And it did not happen last year. So what happened last year was that uh, it's very interesting because the uh, US Department of Agriculture, they released this uh, uh, regular report about uh, world agriculture supply and demand. And then uh, their estimation of the amount of wheat product produced in Russia was in the span of 10 to 15 million uh, lower than what the Russian agriculture, agriculture ministry is releasing in terms of reports, which is, you know, this is a huge difference. It cannot be a claim that is based on something that has not been noticed. You know, in, in terms of agriculture, there are satellites that are counting land cultivated and so on. So, you know, such, such huge differences are impossible. So the only plausible explanation is that um, Russia was taking wheat from the farmers in the occupied territories and was I selling see. it, right? So uh, that, was, that was the reason why the wheat price did not skyrocket after the initial knee-jerk reaction. there was still that. some demand. Uh, there's sense. still some supply. There's still some supply right, right, that, that right. is coming from the areas, right? But the problem is that over time, uh, first of all, the farmers didn't have access to the land, so they couldn't replant. The second thing is that uh, they didn't have enough financing for, um, you know, for anything from machinery and fuel to fertilizer and so on. So that's one of the main reasons of why um, the crop for this year is projected to be so much lower. So there are still opportunities there. The problem is for like, um, I know that a lot of retail investors are watching this. And the problem is that um, I was investing through an, uh, a couple of ETFs. And uh, they are not really available anymore from uh, an investment point of view to uh, Ooh, to, okay. to foreign investment investors outside of the U.S. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if you have uh, you know futures account and so on, it, this is not something that I'm recommended to uh, recommending to the average um, you know retail investor. But you you have to explore something more esoteric in terms of uh, trying to get exposure to that. Um, in broader terms. There are a few areas where um, uh, where there are additional opportunities. One is uh, the Korean uh, defense industry. Oh. So, um, so the first country that started um, doing business with Korea after the invasion started was Poland. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into details of uh, how Poland is actually participating in this. They are, they are a very, very active side in terms of uh, aiding Ukraine. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing here is that uh, Korea uh, produces military equipment that is NATO grade. Right. So it's compatible with, uh, for example, ammunitions that are produced any, by any other NATO country, uh, but is cheaper and is producible faster than, for example, if they, um, if you know, whichever country in Europe, for example, goes to the US or, uh, or most other producers in Europe. Right. So uh, Korea is able to fill this gap relatively quickly as compared to other producers. So um, while the uh, stock prices of some of the companies, so first of all, um, um, you know, the, the Korean companies, like the Japanese companies, they are not simply, you know, doing one thing. Yeah, right? they, are, they are usually conglomerates. And I mean, Samsung's the classic case, right? Exactly. Yes. They're so, in phones, they are in TVs. Uh, and, yeah. There they are a lot of different, um, you know, industries. Shipping, that they, yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, you have to, you have to probably do a little bit of digging yep. and you have to see if the subsidiary that is more closely related to the defense industries, even listed as a separate entity hopefully yeah. right <laughs> so uh, but uh, my personal opinion is that there is a lot of uh, opportunity there uh, a couple of other uh, like even broader areas i mean i don't want to mention names of here course, right so uh, I'm, I'm talking broader terms um, in in broader terms there are two countries in particular that are going to benefit tremendously from uh, the war uh, from from the war and i know most people are expecting to say the us and yes the us gas uh, natural gas sector has has benefited as a result of the displacement of uh, deliveries from from Russia. Russia to Europe. Uh, but uh, in the longer term, that's um, you know I, I think this trend is uh, is more than priced in right now. Uh, so there are two countries in particular that are benefiting. One is Poland that I mentioned. The other one is Turkey. Uh, so traditionally, and because of what we talked earlier about the tripwire strategy of NATO in regards with the danger of uh, Russia potentially invading some of the Eastern European countries. Um, uh, so because of this, most of the uh, centers of gravity in terms of military strength in Europe, they have been in Germany as opposed to somewhere more eastward where, um, you know, you, you would think that they would more naturally be. So as a result of the invasion, most likely the center of gravity is going to move to Poland. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Poland is, and especially having in mind all the blunders, mostly in terms of communication of Germany along, uh, you know, this entire situation. And uh, we can, I'm not sure if we have the time to talk more in, de yeah. in depth about uh, Germany and their geopolitics and so on. But uh, based on all of this, it's much more likely that some significant investments are going to be made in Poland in terms of uh, manufacturing capacity for, for the military industry uh you know and all the logistical the, the whole logistical chain that is necessary for uh, for all of this which is very broad in, in so i mean <clears throat> um we, uh, i like to move on but just one last question i think i just want to circle back what's likely to happen i guess uh do you think that russia is going to go forward or go backwards. Okay. Uh, because both are disastrous. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, and in this again, talking about the calculations of a dictator, right? So, yes. so the the problem with the dictator is that unlike uh, an elected politician, yes. for example, very frequently they put their life on the line when they when they take some uh, very significant yes. decisions, right. right? So uh, Putin, in particular, is in a situation in which uh, he can't really go uh, go back. Right. So exactly. So he, he the only way is for Russia to be forced out of Ukraine. If Russia will go forward, they are trying even right now to go forward. So, for example, there are three areas in particular where there are uh, very substantial battles that are taking place right now. The one that is most frequently reported is Bakhmut. I'm, I'm sure you have you have mentioned i've heard of it in the periphery yeah but so, yeah I, I think like what's interesting about the ukrainian war is how uninvolved the war is like after someone tweets you know pray for ukraine and they post with ukraine flag on instagram and that, that's about it uh it's it feels unless you're european it feels very far away I, I I can I can appreciate right. that right? right I can appreciate it no no of course of course it shouldn't be that way I mean it is a global village but uh, yeah anyway back to the question so if I summarize your view you're saying that forward is the likely direction for Russia that they're only going that Putin specifically is only going to do more and I think le- like leading to that uh, or building on that I think I just don't see how. Uh, a Germany or even a Poland would put troops on the ground because right now it's sort of like a cold war, right? And what NATO is doing is, okay, here's here weapons, here money, resources, information. But if Russia really goes all the way, do you think that if Russia annexes Ukraine, <clears throat> like will NATO respond or will they just start finger wagging and and that's it okay so this is I, I think this is a more robust and complicated question of course, of course. <laughs> yeah uh, you're appreciating but um okay first of all uh there is absolutely no way at this point that Russia can uh, win in brackets this war right so there there it's um the amount of losses that they have sustained to this point, uh, even if they have, uh, even if they go ahead and be successful with an extra uh, mobil- mobilization of they're talking about 300,000 extra troops or something like this, is just not going to help them. So throwing bodies at, at, at the war is not the same thing today as it was, um, you know, in, uh, even in the Second World War or, or earlier wars where you have an army of 500,000 yeah. and the other <clears throat> army is yeah. 100,000 and the army of 500,000 will win no matter what, right? No matter what the other army does, the bigger army, you know, Has generally wins. Yeah. Right. So this is not how modern war works just because of the, all the advancements in, in weaponry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Mobilizing extra people is not what's going to change things for for Russia. Uh, in terms, so the the question right now is not so much about if Russia will win or lose. They have already lost because this is not you know their their calculation has nothing to do with uh, you know just sustaining the territories they were anyhow already occupying in the Donbas or or Crimea, right? So this was not 
this is not the the idea of of their invasion the the idea was to just have control over the whole of Ukraine and the control was not supposed to be with uh you know enormous occupation army that stays there it was supposed to be through a puppet government like the one in Belarus for example um so this is this is how they were they were they were attempting to control the country um so the war is in from this point of view the war is already lost for Russia the question right now is if Ukraine is going to retake all the territories that are being occupied by Russia and uh and very much this, the the question of if and the question of when is going to be decided on um how active the NATO countries right. are in supplying um um the proper military equipment to Ukraine to Ukraine so uh, we are not talking about uh soldiers uh, foot on the ground right this is not going to happen in in, in any circumstances uh the question is about uh, like for example weapons precision weapons with a uh, higher range that is that is being talked about and this is you know one of the i don't know how many already red lines of russia that they have uh, mentioned uh the other one is the delivery of tanks and how quickly that's going to happen and the other and the third one is the delivery of uh fighter jets which is also in talks right now so depending on how fast this progresses and how far it goes uh it's going to decide the the you know the time frame of when things actually end all right from now on this is the this is the only variable that is not um knowable right so right it's just now. a managed uh is how, how do we manage the end i guess of the war you can you can say so yes so you know how how do you look at this and make sense of what's happening in china and taiwan because okay. as far as i'm concerned what happens in ukraine i wouldn't say stays in ukraine but it's very limited right what are the global effects okay you get slightly high inflation you get and by the way in high inflation was already happening before the ukraine war happened uh higher wheat prices you know that that, that the, these are the global effects of the war and so it's r- largely contained the china and taiwan situation if it escalates it, it's a global problem and almost every country has a stake in this issue um why why do you feel that it was important to because you gave me the notes beforehand that all the stuff you want to talk about why why do you feel it was important to connect this with what's happening in ukraine okay so uh one of the one of the problems that the world is facing right now is that uh for different reasons there might have come a point where the world is awakening to once again right so uh, during the cold war the world was very wide awake on the dangers of uh, authoritarian regimes yeah due, due to world war ii um so the problem with authoritarian regimes is that they are fragile by nature what i mentioned earlier that uh for example when uh you know when times are good everything is fine right you don't you don't actually see any flare-ups or anything uh but when the times become bad this is when things become worrisome because the calculation of a dictator are very different once again from the uh, calculations of a, of a democratic society right it's just because 
this power is uh, focused in, in one person. So the life of this one person, especially having in mind a dictator in a dictatorial regime needs to go through an enormous amount of pain just to get to the position of being a dictator. I mean, rarely a totalitarian is there just because, um, you know, they were freely elected or something like this. It's very rare that this is the process that takes place most of the time you know, they have to step on, uh, let's call it the corpses of, of many other people until they reach that point, right? So it's very rare that a person like this would uh, voluntarily uh, give up uh, power, especially having in mind that the chance of them surviving later on are are not very high, right? So that it's their life that is on the line. So because of this, the calculations are very different and and very unpredictable, unfortunately. So uh, with, the, with the war, uh, in Ukraine, the world started awakening to this possibility. And, you know, the, the thing is that it was not meant to be this way, right? So, and, and this has to be understood very clearly. So when Russia annexed Crimea and, and like basically, let's, let's say, supported separatists in the Donbass, yeah. um, this, was, this was not very different than what Russia was planning to do with Ukraine right now. So if you, if you, I don't know if you remember 2014, you might have been quite, <laughs> quite young at that time. Yeah, Maybe but not uh, I, 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 I remember it was uh, people were likening it to uh, Britain allowing Hitler to annex. That, yeah, the Sudetenland. The Sudetenland. Yeah, yeah that is a yeah. part. Is part of the yeah. Czech Republic. At yeah, that the Sudetenland. Yes, correct. And uh, and 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 Czech Republic as well. Yeah, is that, that that famous? I mean, they always laugh at Neville Chamberlain for this, and of course, they are feeling they are the people who brought this point out are feeling a bit more justified. Although the Nazi war machine was far more effective than the Russian one right now, but yes, continue. Uh, yeah, I mean the the effectiveness of the force is a uh, is a separate like of if course. they if they are going to be able to be successful is a different topic from if they okay. are going to do that, right? So um, my, my point here was that Russia has been, uh, you know, let, let, let's focus on Russia because we have been talking about this so far. They have been doing stuff that, uh, that, is, that is dangerous and, and shows the dangers of an authoritarian regime long before this invasion in Ukraine. And their idea was that the world was not going to react even now. So that's why it was supposed to be a blitzkrieg in the first place. That's why it was supposed to end very fast, right? So you don't want to have any pain. You don't want to hear about, um, you know, children and women that are being raped or or massacres in in certain areas and then reviewed uh, mass graves of people and so on, right? This is not. This was not all part of the calculation. So it was supposed to be much more similar to what happened in 2014 when, okay, there was some reaction from the world, but it was definitely not in any way decisive. And even after 2014, for example, Germany went ahead with building uh, the second pipeline, uh, gas pipeline, yeah. uh, Nord yeah. Stream 2, and so on. So, uh, you know, before this, there was the invasion of Georgia by Russia in 2008, let's say. Also, there was pretty much no reaction just because it ended so fast and nobody knew what happened, right? So for no, no, even until today, nobody really knows what happened in South Ossetia, like who suffered, uh, yeah. what type of casualties and so on. So uh, the, in this regard, and, and it, this is also related to the timing of the war, it was not supposed to, 
you know, just in the in terms of the general scope of the situation, it was most likely not supposed to be um, an end to a means to an end, right? So it was supposed to be just a just a stepping stone. So right. Russia manages to um, take over the government in Ukraine. This was the main goal. Then uh, use a puppet puppet to control the country basically you can say except for probably the westernmost regions where probably the they were thinking that the ukrainian government can can hold some can have some foothold and then later on that so why the timing didn't make sense to a lot of analysts is because uh everybody was expecting that if this happens obviously russia cannot stand against the nato forces by by itself if it comes to a direct clash between uh, nato and russia and all the war gaming of NATO was eventually related to uh, an invasion of Russia in the Baltic states, especially in Latvia and Estonia. So um, again, we are, we are turning to Latvia. So this, this situation is very interesting there. But anyway, so the scenario was supposed to be that if Russia invades countries that are a part of NATO, they bog down NATO, or at least they, they, the NATO is focusing their attention there, which frees up China to potentially uh, take on Taiwan, right? right? And, and all of these are supposed to be very fast. Uh, you know, they're, they're not supposed to be uh, prolonged war conflicts or something like this. So, uh, by the way, just a quick explanation about Latvia, just to give you an idea. So, Latvia has a very, very sizable Russian ethnic minority. And the Russian minority in Latvia, they are not European citizens. They are not, they are not citizens. Latvia is a part of the EU, but the Russian ethnic minority, they are not EU citizens. Okay. Right. Okay. So with all the consequences that, that come with that. So, uh, you know, Latvia is, has long been, uh, the point where, uh, most NATO generals have been believing that, um, if, when, when the moment comes, this will be where Russia will step first in, in NATO territory. Um, so, you know, going, going to, to China and yes. how, how this relates. To, so, so this was, this was the general idea. So not, neither, neither China invading Taiwan, which is a, which is a, um, a maritime invasion, which is the most. It's way, way more difficult. It's, it's much more complicated than, uh, you know, the, the free plane lands of the Donbass that, uh, that, um, Russia is using to invade, invade Ukraine. Um, and, and, so, and also Taiwan has been preparing it exactly for they, seven, 60 years, exactly. 70 years. Exactly. So, they, so it's a yeah. completely different situation, yeah. right? So nobody in there, right? And it's not just that. So China is in general, uh, um, surrounded by so-called enemies, right? So you have, yes. uh, you have South Korea and Japan to the North. You have the Philippines to the, to the South and Vietnam. Uh, yeah, the relations with Vietnam are not great, but at least Vietnam is not uh, closely related to the United States, at least, right? So, for example, right, right, it's, not, okay. it's not the same situation where just a few days ago, uh, the news came out that uh, the U.S. negotiated for uh, extra, at least access to four extra military bases in the Philippines, right? So this is very unlikely to ever happen uh, in Vietnam, but they, are, they, they can do that with, with the Philippines. Well, I would say, I think with Vietnam, um, not sure if you know this, I think if you look at their history books, a lot of it centers around how the Chinese dominated them. They have like the first Chinese domination, the second, the third. So if, even though they may not be friends, although I think they're friendly to the United States, uh, they have their own gripe with, China uh, as well. But yeah, your point is taken because then to the north you have snow, <laughs> uh, ice, 
So there's not much going on there. And of course, to the West, they have all the issues, you know, with, um, you can say Islam and things like that internally and externally. So you're right. They are surrounded by enemies. So, uh, yeah. Uh, what I mean, what I mean in the more broader picture here is that it it was never possible for China to actually, uh, if if they were ever going to invade Taiwan, this was not possible to happen in twenty twenty two ever. Like this is a complete impossibility, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's why Ukraine was just supposed to be a, a stepping stone towards something later on, right? So there was a great miscalculation by Russia. There was a lot of, um, uh, you know, I, I want to say valor on the side of, uh, of the Ukrainian people to actually manage to, uh, to stand in, in, in the face of this aggression. Um, but I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around how, what happens in Ukraine can inform Chinese leaders. Uh, is it the case of, well, if Russia succeeds and the West, that's nothing about it. That means I can do it to Taiwan. Absolutely. This is one hundred. This right. is one hundred percent the case. And um, so, the U.S. in particular had to um, uh, had to use quite a lot of persuasion in Europe just to make sure that there was a unified response to the invasion of Ukraine. Right. So uh, it was. It was not baked in that all the countries in Europe were going to react in the same way. And, and I think this is something that many people that uh, live uh, or, or have never lived in Europe or have never really observed closely uh, how Europe works uh, can't really appreciate very well. Uh, you know, many people see the EU as one unit. But we really know it's it's yeah. not. So there are enormous differences between the different countries in terms of um, you know culture and and purely in terms of geopolitics. Uh, you know the 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 scenarios in Europe are very diverse, and one of the greatest losers of this whole situation is Germany, just because Germany has had its entire um, you know economic development strategy centered around uh, cheap imports of uh, of energy from Russia. Right. And, and, and it has been getting crazier by, uh, by the year. Uh, and this, this relates to your question earlier about uh, like what kind of exposure, uh, yeah. an investor can get and like wh where are the, um, you know, mispricings. So, uh, you know, everybody's talking about nuclear and, and yes, there is, uh, you know, nu nuclear is going to make, um, yeah, that's why uranium stocks have done really well. Yeah, but the, the thing is that uh, for me, it's difficult to get clean exposure to uh, to anything that is related to, to nuclear and probably uh, getting direct exposure to uranium miners, for example, uranium producers or whatever, is not the best way to, uh, to okay. do it. Um, but I mean, this is probably a topic for another conversation It's just that just to give you an idea. So there was a very, very strong Russian lobby in Europe, in, in some countries, including in Germany, to the point where they managed to persuade uh, the government of Germany that, uh, they have to, uh, go off of, uh, any plans to, to go nuclear. Right. Uh, in, in, ter in terms of relying in any way, uh, right. nuclear energy. So there was this, um, very, um, um, robust, uh, agreement within the EU about, uh, the transition to, um, you know, carbon neutrality and so on and, and zero, uh, whatever, zero carbon or whatever. So it was called the green deal. 
And then in this green deal, the craziest thing was that Germany was pushing very, very hard. And I'm talking about a, you know, a period of years of time, not, not, not just, you know, for, for a few weeks, or you can, you can say that it's one official that uh, might have been bribed or anything like this. We are talking about overall strategy of Germany, uh, where they did not want nuclear energy to be a part of this green deal. So they did not want nuclear to be in any way involved in this transition, gradual transition towards, um, you know, sustainable energy, but they wanted gas, natural gas, which is a fossil fuel to be a part of it. Right. Right. Which, which doesn't make, much sense because nuclear energy objectively is one of the most uh, it is the it's probably the, the most the efficient energy uh, you know is is the cleanest although uh, in Europe a lot of people are pointing of course to Chernobyl, Chernobyl yeah. and later on to Fukushima and so on and they are saying that you know it, it's clean on paper but when uh, um, um, you know, something is faulty, even something very small. So then you, yeah, have- I, I, the PR is not good. That's for sure. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, you, yeah, you can, I, I do have a question relating to this energy issue that honestly, uh, I just want to know if you have thoughts on the United States will soon be all perhaps already is the largest producer of natural gas, which is a fact that has been true for at least the past five years or so, but a lot of people don't know this, right? When they think of natural gas and oil, they think of Russia, the Middle East, things like that. Why isn't a Germany more, or Europe in general, more receptive to American natural gas? Well, one of the reasons is the distance, right? So there's okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> this is one of the problems. So in general, uh, liquefied natural gas is, is more expensive than uh, the pipeline gas that uh, yeah. Europe was receiving from Russia. Um, the, so just to, to couple this with what I was talking about Germany, I don't know if you can imagine it or if you knew that, but Germany did not have a single LNG terminal in the country. And we're talking about uh, what the fourth biggest economy in the world, ah, it did not have- Because they didn't prepare for it, right? Yeah, so, uh, but it, I mean, you, you can say they did not prepare, but this is al- almost criminal, uh, you know, inaction by by the government that did, yeah, did not yeah. even have this contingency plan. So yes. you can imagine how strong the Russian uh, gas lobby in the country has been yes. that they were like fully reliant on, on, on Russia, Russian yeah. gas, right? So it doesn't take long and doesn't take a lot of money, especially for a, an economy of the size of Germany to build such an energy terminal. And they already have one. And I think they are building a second one, if I'm not mistaken. Well, what's, what is interesting, it seems like I would imagine if uh, given the challenges that they are facing with Russia, I mean, it's definitely going to be a cheaper option to get it from the US, right? Um, yeah, I, I know they have deals with Qatar and things like Norway, that as well. Norway, yeah, Norway. Mo- mo- yeah, yeah. Mo- most of the, especially North European countries, they get a lot of their gas right. from Norway. Um, so the problem is that, uh, okay, Germany is a very complicated case, which I think few people, um, you know, yeah. understand properly, especially outside of Europe, even in Europe itself. Um, so Germany has a few general geopolitical policies that uh, have been centered around their relations with Russia since at least the, I, I want to say 1960s, if not immediately after the Second World War, right? So, 
Uh, one of them was called Ostpolitik, which was the uh, the policies of, especially at that time, the West German government, the world's first East Germany, and as an extension to that with the Soviet Union, which proceeded after the Soviet Union disbanded after their unification of Germany and so on. And then the other policy is called uh, Wandel, Wandel durch Handel, which means, um, uh, it, you know, it's general translation change through trade. So means like, for example, they are hoping that uh, the, uh, the regime with authoritarian tendencies in Russia, which has always been like this, except for a very brief period during uh, Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s. Um, so they were hoping that by trading with Russia, they are going to be able to uh, change their calculations in terms of how they behave towards other countries, right, for right, example. Which obviously... Which failed, yeah. which completely yeah, failed, right? Least, yeah. So because of this, there was a famous speech by Olaf Scholz, the, the German chancellor, uh, a month or so after the invasion of Ukraine that uh, was called, uh, you know, the, it was not called, but this was the keyword there, Zeitenwende. So this is about change, changes of time. Um, so the idea is that Germany is going to look away from from Russia as a, as the center okay. as the center on which its uh, its economic policies are uh, are built. Uh, the problem is that um, it, Germany is so entrenched with with Russia in general. Even though you know nowadays they are saying that uh, they are not importing any more energy from from Russia and so on. That if they want to make such a major shift away from from Russia, it most likely will change the way how. Uh, overall calculations within the economy work and how competitive the economies with, uh, let's say, other economies in Europe that don't really have uh, so far the privilege of uh, enjoying very cheap Russian uh, energy. By the way, uh, one important thing here when, I mean, again, we are we are switching back to Europe, but uh, I just want to explain in a, a bit more detail just so people understand, uh, you know, why many of the things have been happening. If you have been uh, paying closer attention to, to, you know, the reactions of different European countries to the conflict. So uh, the problem is, even though a lot of the smaller members of the European Union have been pushing for a very long time for an energy union, right? Uh -huh. uh, this has not happened. One of the reasons for this is because Germany enjoyed much much lower uh, energy import prices from Russia as compared to some of the smaller countries, right? So for example, let's talk about, you know, I, I come from Bulgaria, which is a country that is, the population is like 12 times less than, than, than Germany. And of course it's poorer than, than the German population on a per capita basis, GDP per capita or whatever. So, but you know, you can, you can view it from the point of view of uh, some small retail client that you have and some large corporation that comes to you and, uh, and, and you want, you, you, you want, uh, they want to work with you and they want to have a long-term contract and they're going to pay you a lot of money, right? So if you are the seller, you are definitely going to give better price to, to the big corporation, right? So this is just basic economics yeah. of how it works. So that's why a lot of the countries in Europe wanted to have this union so that they negotiate the same prices with Russia eventually, but Germany, Germany and, you know, other countries, but Germany was the main, the main one that was very opposed to such a union, just because this gave them very significant competitive advantage to other countries in, uh, within the EU at least. So, um, in this sense, Germany not relying on cheap Russian energy changes the calculation and it is like evident even now that Germany seems to be trying to get closer to China 
just to compensate in some ways for this uh, lack of uh, or, or lost competitiveness from this loss of cheap supplies from from Russia. Right. Uh, by the way, just just to give you an idea, um, and and this is again related to dictatorial regimes uh, versus uh, democratic regimes and so on. So this is one. Germany is one of the very clear examples where uh, the general population can act in ways which are not necessarily uh, economically advantageous to it. Right. So, for example, the the pure the 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 advantage that germany has and the way of life of germans is mostly sustained by getting cheap energy from russia so but it's the german people and not i'm not talking about german industry or let alone the german politicians that drove this change to um you know move away from russian energy supplies is the people that mandated this to happen right so people uh, I don't know if they understand or don't understand this this fact that this is what German competitiveness stems from. But if even if they do understand it, they mandated the government to actually move away from that. Right. So they were not happy with what they were seeing that Russia was doing. They were not happy with the policies of Germany. So they mandated the government move away from it. Uh, yeah. This is this is not the case, for example, in dictatorial regimes where, of course, the the so leader I, yeah. through different means. It's not necessary to be through um, you know sheer strength that they force their strategy on the people. It's most of the time um, you know uh, um, underwritten by uh, by a, a huge propaganda campaign and information control campaign where they just yep. switch the narrative towards something that uh, that is beneficial to them. Right. So I, I guess now we head back to Asia, here, Malaysia, right? We are a country that has always been neutral. Uh, but where is our place, right? I guess in in this world. Okay. I mean, so- it's ever-changing. <laughs> it's confusing. Uh, we have our own issues at home. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh- Malaysia, fortunate, and you know, I'm I'm talking to uh, a lot of friends here in Malaysia, and I'm telling them you cannot imagine how blessed you are oh, that yes. you are not yes, uh, in a situation so. where you are in the midst of um, you know geopolitical tensions between superpowers. Let's let's call it this way, right? So Malaysia has had the advantage of being able to stay neutral for for a, a long time you can say and throughout most of the history although you know during second world war it was <laughs> it was uh, unfortunately a, a british colony so it suffered from uh, from japanese occupation and so on but but in general it has managed to uh, not have to be directly involved in some huge conflicts um there is the possibility that it may change in uh, in a case where uh, China acts aggressively against Taiwan. Uh, one of the main reasons for this is the Malacca Strait. Yes. Right. So uh, most of the delivery of um, of um, uh, energy products from uh, from the Middle East to China goes through the Malacca Strait. So uh, Malaysia and Singapore play a significant role there. Another another thing is that in the past few years there have been a lot of reports on Malaysia um, exporting substantially more uh, oil than uh, in some cases more oil than actually it was produced <laughs> in the country. This is by the way reported by by Bloomberg, right? That is not my opinion or anything like this. So 
um, you know, there are speculations that some of this oil is a blend between Malaysian oil and, and, and Iranian oil and so on. And of course, most of it heads to, to China eventually. So uh, this happens either somewhere in the Andaman Sea or the Malacca Strait or the South China Sea. So, you know, this is something that uh, for now is being allowed and Malaysia is not is apparently off the hook in terms of uh, in terms of doing all of that. But uh, again, the calculation might change down the road. And this is you know something I think uh, the Malaysian government, if they are aware of it, I, I mean, I'm not I, I have no idea who is uh, dealing with all of this or if it's indeed happening. But based on reports, if that's the case, you know, they have to be uh, quite observant down the road of how the geopolitical situation changes. Uh, the other thing is that um, especially in, in recent, uh, just yesterday, there was this uh, surveillance balloon that flew. Yes, Chinese yes. surveillance balloon. Chinese that, that spy flew, balloon, yeah. Right? So uh, such situations are going to uh, worsen and speed up the divorce between, um, I don't want to call it the West, and I, <laughs> I published something about this. Why, why I don't like the word West is because uh, both Japan and Australia, for example, are eastward from from China, yeah. right? So you, it's very it's a stretch to call it the West. Well, let's call it the American led alliance. Uh, even even so, like yeah. as we discussed, like for example, a country like Germany that is usually um, you know uh, bundled together with the so called West, uh, it's actually much more eastward looking towards uh, partners in the east than than the u.s which answered you know i, I yeah. hope i answered your question to why they were not importing yes, yes. uh liquefied gas from from the u.s for example right so it, it's it's again it's a stretch to talk about some american um you know zealous coalition around the world it's like it's it's a very in, it's in very loose terms in this way um so anyway the uh, i i I probably want to call them the developed world, right? The okay. developed world and China. So this divorce is likely going to speed up if such kind of uh, hiccups continue to happen. I don't know if it was a blunder. My strong feeling is that it was a blunder that this balloon flew over continental United States. I don't think this was supposed to happen because Anthony Blinken is supposed to be uh, visiting China, I think next week, if I'm not mistaken. And then he has apparently postponed his, his visit. So, you know, this is not favorable for favorable development for China. So I think it's, it's a blunder, but uh, overall, these things are going to affect the relations and companies, uh, you know, Western companies or companies that are stationed in the developed world, they are going to speed up their move away from China to other countries. And I think there is a bit too much excitement about movements to India. Uh, right. So there are reasons why companies for so long, uh, you know, I mean, India has always had a great demographic structure yes. better than better than even China's. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there are reasons why if any companies station any offices in India, these are uh, kind of low fixed costs, uh, call centers or, or support support centers or whatever. Right. So these are not some manufacturing facilities. Uh, one of the reasons, uh, so India has for a long time been a nightmare for, for businesses to operate in just by because, design, probably. Uh, um, yeah, you can, well, we can say it's by, the, I mean, so India has a very, very long history of, of, of culture, right? Yes. Of, uh, you can say, you, you can call it semi-democratic culture. 
Uh, and India is a very diverse very country, diverse. right? So, um, and as a democracy and a diverse country is very difficult for decisions to be made and usually you need yeah. to compromise. So compromising usually takes, you know, longer time in general. So, um, you know, uh, you, you can say is by design, I would say is just structural, uh, you know, challenges that, that India itself has as a country that prevented from being a, a heaven for, for businesses. So I think the excitement about India in general is, is overdone. Uh, I think there might be a little bit, uh, so um, Vietnam might be underappreciated and ASEAN as, as as a whole might be underappreciated, which includes Malaysia. So Malaysia is one of the best countries, like as opposed to India, Malaysia is a great country to do business in, right? So it, yes. it's regularly yes, within great. the top 20 in the world. I think the last one was 12th position, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. in the world, which is incredible, right? So any, uh, you know, there are some challenges with corruption and so on, which, you know, every developing country in the world is, is facing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, large companies that are very serious about staying somewhere for a long time, they are, um, you know, I, I want to, I, I don't want to accuse them of anything, but they are generally willing to spend extra money for speed. Let's put it this way. Yeah. Right. Which, which might not necessarily be able to happen in some places. It is possible to happen. I believe in most countries in ASEAN where, you know, if they approach the right people in the right way, they might be able to, 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 to get this trade-off done. So they might be able to start operating very fast, right? So uh, this is one competitive advantage that, that Malaysia yeah. and a number of countries in ASEAN have. And, uh, you know, I, I think it would depend on how uh, the ASEAN countries play their cards. I know that they are trying to, um, uh, you know, be neutral and not to look like they are too much uh, entrenched with, with the US or, or with China, yes, yes. Uh, which is, you know, for now it's a good strategy. It's just that in many cases, um, uh, many countries throughout history that have wanted to stay neutral, they have not had the privilege over time to actually stay neutral. Yeah. Right. So uh, you can stay neutral only until the point where there is uh, some foreign army knocking on, on your door. Like, for example, as I mentioned about the South China Sea or, or the Malacca Strait. You know, if you had, of course, this is, this can go many directions, but if we had to pick as Malaysians, who do we pick? Because that's where you're coming from, right? That, okay, you can stay neutral as long as you want. That's Singapore's position as well. But there might be a time where we have to choose and who will you choose? Well, again, so the, you know, in, in, the, in the longer term, the problem, and I'm not saying that, uh, for example, the US is, is a saint country, right? Oh, so the, the US has, um, Let's Every, just say a lot of issues. Right? <laughs> so right. what I mean is Absolutely. that, uh, so one, one of the things that in general I don't like about the US is that after the disbandment of the, so it's good to have at least two superpowers in the world that kind of counterweigh each yes. other. It is actually a good thing just because each of these countries needs to be careful about what they are doing, right? And then when the Soviet Union disbanded, the US became kind of this wild, west uh cowboy that is just shooting everywhere right so and, and of course it culminated in the in the war in iraq for example i mean many many would argue about this but this is my opinion so it's not great to have one superpower yeah. and and for example uh donald trump is the um uh, you know embodiment of, of of this problem because in the end of the day you we 
it is very likely that the U.S. is going to move away from um, the current global world order that that we have since um, a bit after the Second World yeah. War until today. For example, they are going to uh, to shrink back on uh, on their support for uh, for global trade and so on. It is possible, but nobody expected that it, it would happen as fast as it was happening during the Trump years, right? So uh, a person like Trump, who is a who is a pure populist. Um, is is dangerous for the entire world, right? I, I don't know how dangerous he is for the U.S. per se, but for the rest of the world that decides on the U.S. underwriting world trade, Trump was a was a dangerous event. Okay, so uh, I'm not saying that one side is is better than the other, but the difference is that in democ- in democratic societies there are mechanisms that that resolve issues that might not be sustainable in the longer run, right? So it might, there might be hiccups along the way where something happens, like like the presidency of Trump, but eventually this this might get rectified in democratic societies. In totalitarian societies, it's very rare that such uh, issues eventually get resolved, um, at, at least with, without any kind of bloodshed or, or, yeah. or major yeah. uh, internal conflict or something like this. So, I, I mean, this is my general opinion, right? And right. I think Malaysia has long time ago chosen its path as a as a, as a democratic society, which is, uh, I mean, this is this is great. It's a, Let's it's just say it's very, it has been quite vibrant the past it, five years. Yeah, incredible. Oh. Like like Malaysians have, um, you know, so uh, it takes it takes a certain amount of maturity in in a society to be to be actually democratic, right? So it it doesn't happen. Um, automatically, yeah. and it's not—it's it, not a product of uh, you know. I'll just say we have to be dem- democratic, and, and and you know, it just so yeah. Happened. The example I always give is that you know, just within ninety years of democracy for the United States, they went through a civil war. Oh uh, yeah, for example, right? yeah. So it's uh, it's really uh, it's not it's not easy, but yeah. yeah for I guess for Malaysia, you know, I think I think this also ties back into what you're working on your PhD. Um, I think what you have explained so far is again how fortunate we are as a nation. We have a lot of things going for us. We just a lot of Malaysians can't really see it because they're just looking. Yeah, but oh, but yes. Singapore or oh yes, but right. But if you look at it from a global perspective, I uh, the phrase you know the previous podcast guest the free, the phrase we use is you know we are a an upper middle income <laughs> nation. So. But what do you think Malaysia needs to do, really, to to move up and to strengthen itself, especially going into a world where the US will participate less, um, which means more disjointment, more deglobalization? Well, I mean, one of the problems is with education, right? Yes. So, uh, and many people point to uh, to the TVET program as one of the weaknesses of mm, uh, of, mm. of, of Malaysia. Uh, but without going into so much detail, yes, yes. Um, so you, you know you you have to you you have to uh, strive to climb up the value chain, right? Yes. So, for example, this is one of the problems that uh, China in general has faced, and unfortunately, uh, you know, we are returning to authoritarian regimes. But this is the problem with authoritarian societies that uh, so to to climb up the value chain, it doesn't just require. Uh, proper formal education. It requires general rule of law where, uh, you know, okay, you are educated enough. You have the technical capabilities to do something innovative and then you're able to work in team and so on. You have your friends and then you group and then you want to 
you know, build something completely new and then you are putting in capital and a lot of risk, you know, your time, your reputation and so on on the line, right? And then you want to know that your, your calculation is such if you put in so much time and, and effort and, and capital into something, you want to know that in the end, you will get a reciprocal kind of return yeah. for the risk that you're putting. It's not necessarily that it will be successful, but you need to know that you'll be able to, to, to reap the rewards of this, right? So this is something that is missing from, um, you know, in societies that don't have a rule of law as, as a ubiquitous kind of, kind of um, uh, you know, um, environment where, where people live. So, um, Malaysia has the environment. This is, you know, again, it's, it's unique about Malaysia that Malaysia has the environment. It's an environment where generally, um, you know, as an individual, you know that you can rely on, uh, on, on, on a, a relatively free market where except for a few niches that might be, um, uh, you know, monopolized you might you you might be able to succeed and when you succeed you will be able to um you know get immensely rich like for example the the glove owners the glove company owners are one of the um you know typical examples that can be given for for malaysia the problem is that to achieve that you need to have the, the technical know-how and you have to have the education to do it which malaysia for now is is, is yes. lacking in general society. I'm not talking about, you know, individual people. You have to have a certain uh, mass of, of people within the country right. in order to, to have the whole chain of, 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 of people that are able to sustain such type of operations. And unfortunately, Malaysia doesn't have this so far. Um, you know, many people are pointing to, uh, to brain drain. Uh, I honestly don't think is uh, is so substantial as to be as to be the main issue. Okay. Um, and you know, I'm I'm comparing that, for example, to some Eastern European countries that uh, you know the brain drain proper, in Eastern yeah. Europe is is you know completely incomparable to what is happening yeah. in Malaysia or anywhere else in the world, and it has been going on for thirty years, right? But some countries in Eastern Europe, like the like the Baltic states, especially Estonia uh, and Poland. Um, and, you know, Czech Republic, for example, that, you know, these are countries that are right next to Germany where, you know, you can literally cross the border nowadays and you're already in Germany. You can look for a job in Germany yep. instead of yep. Czech Republic. So you, you can imagine. That. Yeah, I mean, like another one that people don't talk enough about is like Italy, for example. It, you know, Italians are some of the smartest people ever. And um, a lot of them are in the UK. They're working elsewhere because unemployment is just so high in, the, in, in, in Italy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, yeah Italy is... A little bit uh, of a different kind of example, of course, of course. because you know, in Europe, it's just uh, in most countries, not all is is very easy to move from one place to yes, another, right? right? So, right. so, so you can if you have very any fluid, yeah. uh, if if you have any sort of arbitrage in terms of uh, being able to, to to earn better than than what you would in in your country, most of the people would choose to to choose to go somewhere, especially having mind the distances are relatively uh, not 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 so significant. Um, but what I mean is that. This is not the central issue of Malaysia, but the, 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 the bigger issue that I see is just with, uh, you know, purely um, quality of education starting from very early age uh, all the way to, to college, for example, in the country. And, um, you know, it's, it's not an easy problem to resolve because it, it takes time. But uh, I believe this is the only way how Malaysia can, right. can, can progress further, right? So, um, it's yeah, yeah this, I mean this this is what I'm doing for my research and probably I'm biased in a way, but 
Um, yeah, I'll be looking forward to seeing some of your findings uh, in a few months or years, I guess. Sure. Okay, we're coming towards the end. Well, time flies, but uh, I, th- I think just the last thing that I want to discuss would be the questions that investors care about the most, right? Um, that will be the interest rates. Um, there was a surprise-ish uh, rate hike that happened a few days ago which was a 25 basis point rate hike. This is much lower in contrast to the 50 or the 75 basis points that has happened in the past. A lot of it is the the word used by Jerome Powell was disinflation, but we're not quite out of inflation yet. Um, do you have views on, you know, where interest rates and markets are heading? Okay. So, um, again, it's, it's probably much more complicated of question course. than we have the, the time to cover fully. But um, I, I don't want to comment on how um, surprised, su- surprising this move by, uh, by Powell was. But the thing that surprised me and, and I'm concerned about in general, and markets seem to like kind of shrug it off, is that uh, Powell mentioned something that is actually not true in, okay, in, okay. His, in his um, uh, Q&A after, after the session. So uh, they asked him about the financial conditions in general, and then he said that financial can- conditions have somewhat tightened, which is not like, I, I, again, I don't know what kind of data he, he uses and, and, and what kind of sources he has, but b- based on any major... Um, financial conditions indicator out there that I have looked at and, uh, you know, I have read a number of other analysts that are doing the same thing. So everybody's saying this is completely untrue and financial conditions are today as loose as they have been in February 2022 when the Fed actually started hiking. When you, when you say financial conditions, you mean the uh, how willing people are to spend and well, to deplete I mean, their savings? How, how do you define? Yeah, there, there are there are different um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know in, indices and indicators yeah, yeah. that are, that are used. But for example, the availability of credit, for example, and the ease of uh, of, of getting credit, ah, for okay. example, is one of the major factors in these indices. So um, I, I I wrote a note to my subscriber some time ago, that, and I was talking about this. So um, uh, you know the current um, um, situation. So the, 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 the problem is that normally in, in previous eras, when, uh, you have the central bank tightening, banks are much more unwilling to, to lend, right. Or right. financial institutions in general, they are, they are, they are tightening their lending, um, and their requirements and so on. So this is, so the, exactly the opposite has happened last year. So in 2022, lending was three times higher than in 2019 prior to the, uh, to the by pandemic. in terms of the quantum of the credit. Yeah, just just quantity. Of course, of course not. Uh, it's not adjusted for of for inflation, so, but uh, you know, inflation cannot make such a big difference. Yeah, yeah, of course, three of times course. more, right? Exactly. Yeah. So so this is an amazing. Um, um, you know, this, this not this not something that that is normally observed, and one of the reasons that has been pointed out by some analysts is that um, uh, uh, you know people in general have too much savings. So during the uh, pandemic period, during all yeah. the um, um, you know stimuli and so on, uh, people have apparently managed to uh, ramp up two point one trillion dollars of 
uh, excess savings. Yeah. And then during this period of tightening and um, and and extra inflation, uh, this has dropped to around one trillion and a bit um, over the course of one year. But there's you know the, the you can say the consumer is still strong in this regard, right? So they have they have savings, and because of these extra savings, uh, banks are most likely willing to to lend. So you have some cushion and and buffer if um you know something blows up so you can you can yeah. use these savings as 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 your uh, backup option that's right uh these savings have been drying up not quite yet but uh, according to you know different projections if the if the rate of decrease in savings continues um it they might be depleted by the second half of this year some some probably q3 let's say uh, more unlikely q4 so when this is this is the time when the the threat is going to emerge because this is when financial conditions are most likely going to actually tighten right right so it's not it's not now so um many are pointing out that they believe that due to that um uh, power might be uh, uh you know kind of they, they quite pivoting although it's it's more like a pause you know he's pivoting toward the pause not so much the word uh, cutting a phrase or whatever but it, the pivot might be coming a bit too early right right uh so the danger now is that um because of this inflation might uh, become stubbornly entrenched right this is this is the threat right now but the problem is that I think there is a point where and, and this is something that, <laughs> that I wrote just a few days ago um the problem is that People were complaining about uh, 10% or, uh, you know, in some cases, 15% inflation and, you know, food is getting more expensive and so on. Uh, but when unemployment strikes, uh, people start realizing that uh, it might be better if they are able to earn some salary and pay 10 or 15% more than what they were paying before and maybe even negotiate for higher salary as compared to not having a job at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, in 2022 and, and, you know, end of 2021, the central problem politically was inflation. So the mandate was to reduce inflation. But over time, you know, the political issue is moving towards economic growth and, and, and employment rather than inflation. As in, and as this happens, I expect this is when we're going to see, you know, the, the serious pivot of, of, of the Federal Reserve. But um, yeah, but right. Yeah, it sounds like we are quite far away from that. Um, well, I mean, as I said, you know, based on pure data, it seems like if uh, the inflation rate is kept at where it is right now, which is around five percent or something like this, the core, the core is yeah. four point something. You know, you have the uh, the. I mean, again, it depends on what kind of measures you are using, right? And then there are a lot of caveats in in how uh, the CPI is measured in the U.S. and so on. But let's say around five percent plus or something like this. So if it remains there, then around Q3 we are going to see and uh, and, and I think savings. what the CPI probably masks in a way is the fact that it's affected by, if I'm not mistaken, if, are they affected by real estate prices? Is, is it? Yeah, part of it. Yeah, so uh, there is there is one very artificial measure that right. is uh, plugged into the uh, the rate, and it's like a huge percent of um, the weightage is like I think twenty five percent or something like this. For real estate. Uh, so yeah, it's it's related to to real estate for living, but it's not like prices of real estate. It's not 
rent. Yeah. It's uh, it's owner equivalent rent. This is the name of the yeah. of the measure, and uh, what it represents is that uh, you know some Federal Reserve um, related researchers go around and ask owners, uh, what would you pay to as in terms of rent yeah. to live in your house, for example, which is ridiculous, right? These are not. This is not based in any way on on what's happening in the real yeah. world. So yeah, um, I, I, I guess. Um, what was my question? Yes, I wanted to bring this up recently. I think jobs report happened yesterday, and it was fantastic, right? Which runs in contrary with like the tech layoffs and all of that. How, how do you make sense of this seemingly? like something like a contradiction on the surface at least. Well, uh, you know, this, this, this relates to what I told you earlier that yeah. financial conditions are apparently loose, right? So right. if um, as, as long as uh, there are some improvement that is seen in the economy, like for example, as long as inflation subsides or as long as um, uh, wage, wage requirements by uh, employees subside, there are uh, companies that are actually willing to expand their business still, yeah. right? So as That's long right. as there is credit available, as long as there is money, um, uh, you know, businesses will be bullish. Of course. And, and, and with this, there will be, um, you know, higher, um, uh, basically lower unemployment rate and, and higher uh, new job openings, for example. So um, it's, a, it's kind of a... Uh, it's very similar to what has happened in the 1970s. And of course the, the problem there was very different from uh, yeah, what it is now. Uh, so the first was 1973. So there was this uh, Yom Kippur war. Um, and you know, this was, this was an energy crisis. And then 1979, there was another energy crisis because of the Iranian revolution and so on. But the, uh, the, the way how the movement of inflation and, and economic growth happens right now is very reminiscent to, to what happened at that time. And then recently there are a number of analysts that were mentioned that were comparing. So everybody is, um, uh, is saying that Paul Volcker, the, the Federal Reserve chairman at that time is like a hero and, and he's a hero to, to many that are, um, you know, especially some gold bucks and so on. But uh, before he, he got to the point where he raised interest rates to almost 20% to, to basically eventually crush inflation, um, there were a number of rounds where he was raising a little bit and then he was stopping and then uh, even dipping a little bit lower just because he was thinking that uh, it's done for inflation. Yeah. And, and he, had to, he had to go through a number of rounds over a period of almost 10 years until eventually inflation became just like... Um, yeah, it over takes time. basically it takes time, right? Uh, it takes time. And these were the stagflationary years, right? So uh, you have um, under um, uh, below trend growth and you have higher inflation. So uh, I think we are, we are in this kind of environment. It's not going to happen this year that... Uh, it's going to be a slower burn. I think what we experienced in the past year was a spike. But I think my view is that that two percent target, I, I don't think that's realistic that inflation. I think closer to four or perhaps five. I think Howard Marks, you know, I share his views that the world is not the same anymore, right? We're not as connected economically in that sense. And, you know, that's the trend. Um deglobalization, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we can go a lot more on this. Uh, always a pleasure to have a chat with you. 
And, you know, thank you so much for coming on. I hope, uh, I hope I've asked the questions that I needed to ask, but yeah, any final words, I guess, for, you know, not just the investor, but the Malaysian investor as well. Sure. So, uh, one of the one of the great things is that uh, you know i mean most of the retail investors in general they are familiar with uh, warren buffett or yeah, you yeah. know howard yeah. howard marks and so on although like so people like howard marks or um, um yeah I, so the the problem is that in 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 many cases, retail investors can't really copy these uh, yes, these absolutely. great investors just because you need to do this uh, full time. You need to you need to have the right tools to be able to explore. You need to have access to the right people that you can ask questions and so on. So it's not necessarily the case, and it's much more. So it will it has been a period of around fifteen years where stock pickers were underperforming, which includes how marks includes. Berkshire, right? Yep. So they, they underperformed the, the S&P, if I'm not mistaken, or, or at least they underperformed their general performance from previous periods. Uh, so it's very likely that the next years are going to be a uh, stock pickers market, right? So uh, it's going to probably take a lot less effort to, uh, to get exposure to some good opportunities as compared to what it took uh, during the past years where you needed to, you know, risk your capital on, uh, you know, just anything that is 50 P or, or hundred P or something like this. Right. And, 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 and then the craziest thing was that this was what was earning you money. Right. And this was yeah. <laughs> what was making the most money. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's very uh, encouraging to hear. I think you get a bad, well, well, you tell me whether it's a bad rap, but you get a rap for being bearish a lot of the times. Uh, so that's a breath, uh, breath of fresh air that, you know, you bring, uh, you're seeing something very encouraging, but yeah, Niago, thanks for coming on the pod. Looking forward to your PhD. Uh, be sure all the best and yeah, part three soon. All right. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, MJ. All right, guys. Thanks for hopping on the podcast, guys. Go listen to some of our other um, sessions with other guests as well. If you like this sort of content, remember like, comment, subscribe, usual stuff, follow us on Spotify. And we will see you in the next spot.